0: Peter said, Scott's, Scott and Maria are still traveling, so you've got me this morning. And uh, yeah, I wanted to address that right away. So, <laughs> may, some of you may have looked at the title of my sermon, the, maybe even peeked at the notes on the back of the bulletin, the outline, and said, wait a second. Matt preached on this three weeks ago. Did Pinkham just cut and paste because he really liked the sermon and thought we wouldn't notice. Now, this is um, just a reminder to us that God has a sense of humor. In his providence, it was a year ago, I preached on the prodigal son about a year ago, and at that time, the next passage I wanted to preach on was, was this one about the rich young ruler. So I picked it then, a year ago, long before we knew Scott was leaving, long before we knew Matt Lamaster was going to be our pastor and was going to come here and preach that. So, in his providence, he wants us, some of us to hear this twice, probably me, I, I usually need to hear this several times, so... Anyway, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, it's chapter 10, verses 17 to 22. And I'll read that. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So when I was a kid, I used to get paid for my grades. I don't know if anybody else ever had that experience, but I actually had two sets of grandparents that would pay me $10 for an A and $5 for a B and nothing for C's or lower than that. Um, Barb Barb asked the question, she wondered if they didn't know about it and if they had, if one knew the other, they would have paid me. I don't know, I don't remember that part of it. But anyway, I was getting $20 for an A and $10 for a B. And just an interesting thing to think about because of my age, if you take the value of $10 then and you come to it today, it's actually worth $35. So it would be like giving your kids, for those of us that are parents, $35 for an A. Or, like for me, I'd be getting $70 for an A, $35 for B. It's pretty good money. I had no idea how good I was doing with this. Um, you might be saying, what the heck is the point of this story? There actually is a point. So the point is, I want you to think about a chart that would describe this situation. So you see A, $10, or 35 whichever you want to use. B, $5, C, and below you get zero. Okay, it's a really simple chart. And there's two things we want to think about when we think about this chart. I was paid for my performance, right? And it's really easy to measure how I'm doing. So those two things. And a lot of our everyday life experience is, is like this. You know, doing good often results in us being rewarded. If we're good at our job and we make good lifestyle choices, we treat others with love and care, often we're rewarded. Sometimes it's money and sometimes it's acclaim or respect that we get. And I received both of those for my grades. I got cash and I was labeled as a good student, smart, hardworking, all the things that you call kids that get good grades, right? And that's exactly what my motivation was. I wanted the money, and I wanted the intangible rewards that went along with being a good student. And we really want this to translate to the spiritual realm, don't we? That is, we'd love to be paid for our performance and want it to be easy to measure so we know how we're doing and exactly what we have to do to be rewarded. And the fact is, good works are a crucial part of the Christian life. There's a lot of scripture that addresses the things that we should do and the things that we shouldn't do. Here's two examples that even use the word works in them. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And James 2.17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If we read these verses in a shallow way and didn't think much about them, and along with the way we see the world work, that is, do good things and you get rewarded, it could make us think that we can earn our salvation and that we're better than we actually are. Uh, if you like outlines, there is an outline on the back of the bulletin, and you should be able to follow this pretty closely. I'm an out- I need an outline and I have to have a guide or else I'd be off and wandering off in some other land. So you should be able to follow this if you're, if you're into outlines and like that. But there's three main points. We're not as good as we think. We're blind to our idols. And Jesus isn't part of the answer. He is the answer. So first point, we're not as good as we think, and our good deeds are not that good. So in the Old Testament, the idea of inheriting life is associated with following the law. And that can lead us to think, if we do good, God will will reward us with blessings in this life, and eventually eternal life when we die. But a big problem that you might notice right away is how do we know if we've been good enough? How do we know we've been good enough to earn God's approval? And how do we measure our goodness? If we just think about the Ten Commandments for a minute, there's no chart like my really simple grade chart in the Bible. I've looked. It's not there. To compare how we measure up or or to know how we're doing with the commandments, to measure our, our progress. A couple of quick examples. Honor your father and mother. Have I honored them enough? How exactly do I honor them How do I know when I've achieved it? How about don't bear false witness or don't lie? So I shouldn't tell lies. But what about lies of omission or what about lies of honor? How do I measure those? Do those count? And I think the young man in this story, he's no different than the rest of us. He too wrestled with this question, have I been good enough? And also like the rest of us, when we're honest about the question, we know deep down we've not been good enough. And he knew this too, which is what brought him to Jesus. He's referred to as the rich young man, so he has money. And it seems he's what most people would probably call a good person, too. But he also realizes that he's missing something. So in verse 17, he asks Jesus, What must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's seeking truth, and he's asking exactly the right person. And Jesus answers him by listing off most of the commandments that are related to human relationships, the second table of the law. And this is the part of the Ten Commandments that is a little easier to measure by the things that we do. So in verse 20, the rich young man answers him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And you can almost think that he's he's excited. He's thinking inside, Man, I knew I was close. I knew I was almost there. Eternal life is within my grasp. I've been doing these things all my life. But But then in verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. This is not the answer he was hoping for. The one thing he lacks isn't improving on the commandments or just polishing up his life. He lacks the thing we all lack until God calls us, and that's total submission to Jesus. Like him, we're often blind to the fact that we need Jesus more than our wealth or our security or our pleasure and all of our so-called good works. The rich rich man thinks he's been almost good enough, but he's not as good as he thinks because his and our definition of good does not go deep enough. The rich young man has a superficial idea of what it means to be good. One of the mistakes we make when measuring how good we are is to compare ourselves to others rather than comparing ourselves to God's standards, and I'm sure the rich young man was no different. Here's a couple of really simple examples of how we like to talk about good and bad when we compare things. We do it with our pets, right, dogs, if you're a cat person. You know, I'd say I've had good cats and bad cats. Well, what does that mean? Well, one throws up on the rug and one doesn't, right? One sits on your lap and purrs and the other bites and scratches. You can do the same thing with employees. I've had good and bad employees. The good ones always come to work, they do what they're asked, and they don't make a lot of mistakes. The bad ones throw up on the rug and sometimes bite and scratch. (laughs) But I'm in the car business, so... Thane knows what I'm talking about. And we often compare ourselves to others that we think aren't as good as us. You know, to put ourselves in a better light, I find myself doing that. Like say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not pointing at anybody in particular. However, when we stop comparing ourselves to others and compare ourselves to the law of God, we quickly realize we're not good at all. Isaiah 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. The Hebrew word here for polluted garment literally means rags of menstruation. And in Philippians 3, Paul refers to his works of the law as garbage. See, the law reflects the character of God, and God wants us to reflect his character, not simply go through the motions of doing good works. The law should bring us to a place of complete submission, forcing us to recognize that we could never do the law on our own. In Matthew 9.13, when the Pharisees question why Jesus eats with the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. And then he quotes Hosea 6.6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. God wants our heart. He wants our motivations to be right. He doesn't simply want our good works. He wants them to flow from a righteous heart. He isn't just offering money for grades like my grandparents, or blessings in exchange for good works. He's more like the math teacher who wants to see your work. He wants you to get the right answer, but he also wants to see how you got there. Doing good tasks on a checklist is the easy part. But if we're doing these deeds to either receive blessings or escape punishment, Those are both selfish motivations. God wants us to obey him because we love him. Our definitions of what is good don't go deep enough. And just like the rich young man, we need to recognize that only God is good. So verse 17 again, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man ran up to Jesus. He's eager to hear what he'll say to him. And he even knelt to show respect. Um, part of this is because in Jewish culture, when the patriarch of the family entered a room, the children would stand out of respect, the same way that we stand in a courtroom when a judge enters. But if one of the sons became a rabbi, when that son entered the room, the father would stand out of respect for him. So the office of rabbi was considered to be it was very distinguished and honorable. So this rich young man, he respects Jesus, which is why he knelt. And he believed Jesus was a wise teacher who deserved his respect and could answer his question. Verse 18, And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This verse used to puzzle me because I couldn't understand why Jesus wouldn't include himself in the good category with God, especially since Scripture also teaches that Jesus is God, right? But here are two things that we learn from these verses. First, Jesus is trying to get the rich young man to think about his own perceived goodness. Knowing that he thought of himself as good, He's just challenging him right away on that. Pointing out that, good, that only God is good, right? Only, all goodness comes from God. Because Jesus is God in the flesh, he was in fact good. But the rich young man didn't realize that he was speaking with God. He saw a wise rabbi, maybe a prophet, but not God in the flesh. Jesus wants the young man to see that his idea of good is too shallow. And secondly, when Jesus answers the man's question, how do I inherit eternal life? He tells him to give away his riches and then follow him, meaning that Jesus must be good if following him will achieve eternal life. It's really Jesus claiming to be good and therefore God, not the other way around. So this young man comes to Jesus thinking he has mostly earned his way into heaven by superficially keeping these rules. It seems that he's sincere and humbly seeking truth from Jesus. One of the reasons I chose Mark's version of this story rather than Matthew or Luke's is because Mark's version records that Jesus loved him in verse 21. Jesus loves this lost young man and wants him to see the truth. And the truth is that the only way he can inherit eternal life is to receive it from Jesus. Sometimes it's loving for us to say hard things to people, right? And Jesus does that here. Jesus tells him he asks one thing. Give away all your riches and follow me. It's like Jesus is saying to him, You think you've kept the law? Well, let's see. How about the first commandment? You'll have no other gods before me. Jesus knew this young man's God was his wealth. And that he was blind to his biggest idol, just like we often are. So our second point, we're all blind to our idols. And what we worship controls us. Imagine if you knew the only thing you needed to do to enter heaven was to get rid of your material possessions. Would you do it? I mean, I I have to admit, that would be tough for me not so much because of the possessions, but the security they bring. I mean, one of my sins is that I lack trust that God will actually take care of me. So I think I need a safety net. <laughs> that could have been this young man's problem too, or maybe he just loved being rich and the comfort and pleasures that came with it. I mean, wealth can mean power, status, comfort, it offers all these things. An important thing to point out here Jesus isn't condemning all wealth either, or saying that the only way you can enter heaven is to live a life of total poverty. Notice the Bible teaches this. Let's think about Job for a minute. He was very wealthy. At the beginning of the book of Job, it lists his wealth. It's really, really substantial. And it says he was the greatest in the East. God allows Satan to attack Job and take away everything he had, including his health. Job has a rough time, and he doesn't do everything right, but in the end he stays faithful to God. And in the end, after all that Job went through, God blessed him with even more than he had before. So wealth itself isn't wrong, but it can be a dangerous thing for a sinful heart. Sex is the same. God created it, and it's not inherently bad, it's inherently good. But it's so easy for our sinful hearts to make it into an idol. And Jesus knows that wealth is the thing that's keeping this young man from heaven. Matthew 529 and 30, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus obviously doesn't make, mean for us to take this literally, or the entire Christian community would be made up of blind people with no hands. But, and Jesus does use extreme examples sometimes to show us how our sin and our idols control us, and to help us see just how serious our sin is. Jesus knew that this man's wealth was his biggest idol and he needed to be willing to give it up to inherit eternal life. The idols we worship control us, they're the thing that often gets us out of bed in the morning, the first thing we think about when we get up and the last thing we go to bed at night. It's the thing we love most or the thing we think we can't live without. But a big problem is that we often don't recognize what our idols are. This rich young man didn't see his wealth as an idol and it was keeping him from eternal life because our idols often fly under our spiritual radar. This rich young man's radar was telling him that he had his act together and that he was very close to salvation. In verse 17, he asks, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds in verse 19, You know the commandments. And then in verse 20, the young man says that he's kept those since he was a young boy. He thinks he's done really, really well so far. But he's blind to the fact that he worships his wealth and it's his greatest idol. His spiritual radar has not picked up on this yet. He's focused on the commandments that are easier to measure by external behavior, but he's not meditated properly on the first commandment, that you shall have no other gods before me. And we all want salvation to be a matter of something that's easy to measure. We all want salvation and the blessings of God to be like my report card chart, right? Do these things, get X amount of blessings from God. If you earn enough points, you get an entrance to heaven and eternal life. This young man came to Jesus honestly seeking the one thing that he lacked to inherit eternal life. He's blind to the fact that his wealth was his idol. And when Jesus tunes up his radar and helps him to see this, the rich young man is crushed. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He's sorrowful and disheartened because he was hoping for an easy answer. He was so sure that he was close to eternal life and that Jesus was going to give him that little push to get him over the top. Jesus helps him to see it's not a matter of degrees of salvation or a progression of earned righteousness. His hidden idol was more important to him than the one thing he lacked, and the thing he lacked was total submission to Jesus. This highlights a huge problem with a works-based approach to salvation. The rich young ruler was so focused on keeping the commandments, he was blind to his biggest idol, which was his wealth. So now let's ask ourselves this question. What would Jesus ask each of us to give up? This is the hard part. Do we have hidden idols? If you're not a Christian, your idols are actually keeping you from repenting and trusting in Jesus and therefore they are keeping you from eternal life. So how do you know what your idols are? Well, it's most likely the first thing that comes to your mind and you don't have to think about anything else. It's the thing you love the most. The thing that would hurt the most if Jesus asked you to give it up. But for those of us who are Christians, we often still have hidden idols that keep us from fully following God's call in our lives. So, brothers and sisters, how do we know what our hidden idols are if they're hidden? Well, there's three practical things we can do to test for hidden idols. The first one, this is groundbreaking, I know, we pray for wisdom. But that's always the first thing we should do as Christians, right? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Not might be given him, but will be given him. The second thing we can do is ask other mature Christians that we know and trust. Often others can see our faults and our idols much more clearly than we can. Ask them and then carefully listen. With a humble heart, think about what they tell you and see if there's truth in it. This is one reason it's so important to belong to a local body of believers. We desperately need communal accountability. Loving, godly correction is a gift. And thirdly, it's the same for Christians and non-Christians. If you want to know what your idols are, look at the first thing that comes to your mind when you have nothing else to think about. And this really does work. The thing your mind drifts to, when you can choose what to think about, is often something that's captured your heart. It's the thing that's possibly your secret idol. It's possibly the thing Jesus would ask you to give it up. Maybe he's asking you to give it up right now. If we apply this to the rich young man in our story, verse 21, you lack one thing, go, sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. He came to Jesus because he believed he had the answer he was looking for. And Jesus gives him the answer and then promises the rich man that he'll have treasure in heaven. But even that promise isn't enough to pull him from the idol of wealth. Verse 22 disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So he walked away. He wasn't able to give up his greatest idol. He just couldn't imagine living without it. What do you think this young man daydreamed about when he was sitting with nothing else to think about? It was likely his wealth, or the comfort it brought him, or security or power, maybe all those things. So, a quick review on how we can identify our idols pray for wisdom. Ask mature Christians who are close to you, not just the nice ones. Ask, and then third, ask yourself, what do I daydream about? Where does your mind go when you have nothing else to think about? Another way to think about that is this. As a Christian, the first thing I should think about is Jesus, right? But how often is Jesus the first thing I think about? How often is the first thing you think about? We should want Jesus more than anything else. As we go to our final point, let's consider again the question the rich young man asked, how do I inherit eternal life? And in Matthew's version of the story, he asked, what thing do I still lack? He thought Jesus was part of the answer, or that he could point him to the answer. But the final point is, Jesus isn't part of the answer, he is the answer. Let's think about our works again. If our works could save us, how would we measure them? We thought a little bit about this before, but let's just think about my simple grade performance chart again. Really, really easy. If I get A's or B's, I get paid. C's, D's, or F's, I get nothing. Now, we also talked a little bit about trying to find a goodness or reward chart in the Bible, and they just aren't there. I've looked many times. There's all kinds of weights and measures charts to tell you what a cubit is and all that stuff, but there's nothing about your progression of, of salvation or how good you are. Nothing on how to measure how much I've honored my father and mother. What exactly qualifies as false witness against my neighbor? I know I'm not supposed to rob someone. What about cheating a little of my taxes? Do lies of remission count against me also? And if so, how much? And the reason there's no chart is because it's all or nothing. The law demands from us what we can't possibly achieve, and that's holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter is quoting Leviticus 11, Be holy, for I am holy. Of course, the word holy means to be pure, morally clean, set apart, consecrated. So the law should push us to ask this question, How can I possibly meet the demands of the law? Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So, Jesus is the answer to the question, how do I meet the demands of the law? We can't, but the good news is that Jesus did it for us. And also what the rich young man came to realize was that with Jesus it's all or nothing. Jesus takes God's already perfect law, and then he ramps it up a few notches. He doesn't do this to send us into a hopeless state of depression. He's trying to show us that it's only the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that can save us. Here's a couple of examples where Jesus does this. In Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The Greek word used for fool here literally means empty-headed or stupid. So we read, You shall not murder, and think... Well, no problem. I've never murdered anyone. Check that off the list. I love lists that I can check things. So. Okay. But Jesus says, oh wait, you think you're doing that well? Not so fast. Even if you disdain or look down on another person, you're guilty of murdering them in your heart. Here's another one. Matthew 5:27 and 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we read, you shall not commit adultery. And we say, no problem. I haven't slept with anyone other than my spouse since I got married. Check that off the list. But here comes Jesus again. He says, so about that, even if you look at another woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. So how are we doing now with keeping the law? Jesus sums this principle up in Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus is summarizing the law and the prophets in that one simple concept. To think of how impossible this standard is. We're to treat others the way we want to be treated. If we think about this at all, we quickly realize how we constantly fail at loving others in this way. It's so difficult for us to put other people first. Jesus wants us to see that we can only be saved by substituting his holiness for ours, so that when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ instead of our sin. The young ruler went away disheartened. In verse 22, the Greek word translated disheartened contains in it this idea to be in heaviness, or like a weight of sorrow. And he's sad because he knows Jesus is right. If he didn't think there was some truth in what Jesus told him, he wouldn't be so disheartened. Jesus revealed his greatest idol to him, and has crushed him because he knows it's true. Jesus revealed to him that he worships his wealth. It's his greatest idol, and he's not prepared to give it up. At that point, the rich young man realized what Jesus was asking of him. He began to realize that with Jesus, it's all or nothing, and he needed to lay down his idols completely. But at the same time, he also failed to realize that Jesus offers to us far more than he asks of us. Which is the final point of our final point. Jesus asks a lot, but he offers far more. Verse 21 again, And Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus promised this rich young man treasure in heaven if he gave up his wealth. Think about that for a minute. Treasure in heaven and eternal life in exchange for wealth that you're going to lose anyway when you die. Another thing that I sometimes forget and probably we all do is that Christ not only promises treasure is in heaven but he offers true spiritual joy and peace while still here in this broken world. Notice I said spiritual joy and peace. God does not promise obviously it will be easy. As a Christian, in fact, the opposite is true. But our souls will know peace and our souls will know joy. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit from Ephesians 1:13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We need to remind ourselves often of these promises, right? We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, and our inheritance is guaranteed. Jesus offers far more to us than we can imagine. I love this quote from uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Quote, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself." End quote. Jesus not only wants to save us, but he wants to make us into something far better than we can imagine. And the rich young man felt this, right? He wasn't ready to give up his idols, and he knew that Jesus wanted to do major renovations, not just tidy him up a bit, which is what he thought initially. And that's why he went away sad. I feel this sometimes when God asks me to do something hard, and I don't want to do it. I say, can't you just slow down this renovation process for a minute and just give me a break? To which God says, you need to trust me. I love you and I'm smarter than you. Can't argue with that. So as we wrap up, what do we learn from the story of the rich young ruler? Well, one thing we learn is that God requires holiness. But we are constantly unholy and therefore we can never please him on our own. Only Jesus can pay the debt that we accumulate against God. And what's even better is that he not only pays our sin debt, but he puts his righteousness on us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We also learn from this story that Jesus wants a lot. He wants our hearts, and he wants our idols, but he offers way more than we can imagine. This is Ephesians 3.17-19. This is the promise is given to those who lay down their idols, repent of their sins, and trust in Christ. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So as we close, this passage is something for all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not yet a Christian, just like the rich young man, Jesus is asking you to lay down your idols at the foot of the cross and answer his call to follow me. For those of us that are Christians, Jesus is asking us to search our hearts for hidden idols, fully lay them down, and make him our greatest, his, make him our greatest desire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story and what it reveals to us about our sinful nature and our need for the gospel. We ask that you reveal our hidden idols to us and help us to turn from them completely and trust in you. Increase our faith and help us to love you in the gospel more than anything else. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.